Do you remember the stress of being a teenager? As an adult, you might look back on that time in your life with fondness. You had no bills to pay, no worries about where to live because you were still at home with your parents. You didn't have to buy groceries, the food was just there. You could get a job if you wanted some extra spending money, but you didn't really have to work. Why didn't we appreciate that time more? But in reality, teenagers do worry about things. They worry about grades, whether they'll be able to get into a good college, and if they do get in, if they can afford it without racking up a ton of school loans. They stress about body image and about fitting in with their group of friends, and sometimes there's some family conflicts that can be part of the stress. Then there's dating and relationships, and that's a whole subject in itself. And on top of all that, they have the pressure of having to decide what they want to do with their life. So in spite of the fond memories, being a teenager isn't always easy. Today you're going to hear my guest, Martine, talk about something she experienced when she was 16 years old. By all accounts, she was a teenager with a pretty good life. She lived in a decent house with her parents and her sisters. She went to school and she hung out with friends. Life wasn't perfect, of course, but she was happy. She certainly wasn't worried about her family's home being invaded by armed men in the middle of the night until it happened. Twice. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm gonna kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're gonna be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Before we get into today's story, you're about to hear from a couple of our sponsors. Sponsors play a big role in my being able to bring you these amazing stories, but I completely understand that some listeners will prefer to not hear sponsor messages, and that's fine. If that's you, I invite you to consider signing up for what was that like plus to get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and a lot more. You can do this by going to whatwasthatlike.com plus. And when you're there, use the promo code plus to get one free month. If you're an Apple listener, it's super easy. All you need to do is click try free right there at the top of your feed. So now a quick word from our sponsors, followed by today's what was that like story. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. For what we're talking about today, where were you living at the time? I was living in Haiti and Haiti is in the Caribbean. It is the same land as the Dominican Republic. And I was living in Haiti with my mom and my dad and my older sister. I have another sister uh, who was in New York at the time attending college. And I lived in the capital of Haiti, Port-au-Prince. We were living in a, in a, in a nice home, you know, my bedroom, a beautiful neighborhood, it was a pretty nice life, I would say, living in Haiti. And so I was 16 years old at the time. But you didn't grow up in Haiti. Part of my life I did, Scott, the latter part of it. But when I was born initially, I was born in New York. And at the time, my parents lived in Africa. I ended up showing up <laughs> because my mom was traveling, visiting her sisters. She has eight sisters and a good portion of them lived in the, in the States at the time. So she decided to visit them. And there goes Martine that says, okay, I'm coming. And so I was born in New York. And I, I mentioned this because that's not where I lived. And we lived in Africa. So when I was born, a few months later, my mom went back home in Africa and so I left Africa when I was nine years old. We left Africa to go live in Haiti. Part of the backdrop to the story is the fact that your dad was politically active. What, what does that mean? Yes. And so, you know, I, till this day, Scott, I trying to find answers as to what truly was my dad's career cuz listen I was a child and I only experienced what I've experienced right when he was around and so what I do know is that as a young man and the reason why we ended up growing up in Africa part of our lives my sisters and I is because at the time when he was young my dad that is was a big advocate of he wasn't afraid to speak up and he was in the military at some point of his life in Haiti. But the reason why he ended up going to Africa, and at the time there was a slew of young uh, students like himself that were fleeing the country as a result of the government at the time in Haiti not wanting them in the country because they were very vocal young men. And the political environment at the time did not want that. And so 
uh, from what I understand from speaking to my mother and people that knew my dad to understand the story, he was hiding several times from the government. They were out for him. And so Africa was one of the places that several of them decided to flee to go. Uh, some of them went to Canada, some of them went to the States, but then we went to Africa. And so when we got back to Haiti and the decision was to come back to Haiti when I was nine, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, was as a result from what my mom has shared with me is that the political environment back then was better. And my father felt that it was safe for him to go back, hence why we went back. So let's talk about what happened. This was a December evening and and your dad wasn't actually at home, right? What happened that night? He wasn't at home. It was December 30th. Uh, my birthday is September 19. And I'm mentioning this because my dad had put together an amazing Sweet 16 party for me a couple of months before that December night. December 30th, my mom and my older sister were home. My dad was away visiting my middle sister who was attending college. And that evening, it's been over 25 years now, right? And what I do vividly remember is being invaded, strangers coming in our house. It was a lot of them. I can't make out how many of them, but there were a lot of them. And I remember very clearly that this young man, he was young. He was probably slightly older than me, if I were to guess, because I could have seen him in the glare because they broke into the house and he got in my bedroom and I almost got raped. And I looked at him and I said, don't do that to me, please. And I don't know if it's because he saw the, my face, the desperate face, and he's he was thinking she's as young as me. And all he did is take the chain that I had around my neck that my dad had given me and walked away. My mom and my sisters also, you know, experienced traumatic moments that evening. Guns were pointed at them. Lots of fear, I remember, and just not knowing what was going to happen and just praying to God that they would leave. And so they did after wrecking the entire house. Every December 30th, every year, you know, when the year ends, my mom, my sister, and I always remember that night. And how lucky we were, honestly, for surviving it. But who knows why it happened? We don't know who those people were and what technically they wanted. They took all the jewelry my mom had and everything we had in the house. But yeah, it was in December. I'm trying to picture if I was the father and away somewhere and my family got attacked like that, I would feel pretty guilty, even though obviously it wasn't his fault, but he must have had some guilt that he wasn't there to protect you. 100%, Scott. 
In fact, as soon as he heard the news, and back then, we didn't have the luxury of digital communication like we do today. So he heard about it the next day as a result of my mom going out of her way to get connected with him, phone cards and whatnot. And he was so upset. I remember when he came home. So he left my sister early. So that's already a big trauma for her because she had plans to do all these things with her dad visiting her for the new years and whatnot. And yet he had to leave early to take care of his wife and other children. And I remember seeing him when he came home, I hugged him so much and cried and he was so upset and furious and he was saying a lot of things. And my mom tried to calm him down, you know, cause he was saying things like, I'm going to get a gun. You know, this is crazy. I need to protect you guys. And I was, and my mom was like, no, you're not doing that. And you're not seeing these things, but he was ready to just like, he was, he was really, really upset. That's of course, that's instinctive. That happened in December, just a few months later in May. Can you take us through what happened then? In May, we got invaded again. It was a quiet night. I was in my bedroom. My sister was in her bedroom. My parents were in their bedroom. And it was about three o'clock in the morning on a weeknight. I heard this loud noise. I mean, it's Haiti and I'm thinking ah, there's noises outside and things, you know, it's a quiet night and you hear, you know, at night you hear a lot of noise for whatever reason, right? Because it's so quiet. But then that bang was so loud that I instantly felt something was wrong. And so I opened my bedroom door to find my mom and my dad because I'm like, is it an earthquake? What's going on, right? I did realize and notice that there was no electricity in the house because I couldn't turn on my bedroom light. And so I opened the door and my parents' bedroom was not far. So I ran over there and my sister's bedroom, we they're not far from each other. And I saw my mom, I saw my dad, I saw my sister, and we're all frantically looking at each other. And my dad peeks and to see what's going on, the front door's open. And we notice a bunch of people. When I say a bunch, that's what I remember. I It wasn't one person. It was at least five, six people with weapons, firearms, machetes, knives, in every single corner of the living room, in every single corner of the house. It happened so fast, Scott, but I do remember my dad pulling me, my sister and my mom, because we were close, closer to my bedroom. He pulled us to go inside our my bedroom and he shut the door and we could hear them, the people invading the house, just breaking the bookcases, breaking chairs and shouting in Creole, which is the mother language of, of, of Haiti in Creole saying, where's the money? Where, where Where's the jewelry? And my dad's like, 
I could hear my dad saying, what is going on? What is this? And as soon as I guess my dad realized we were invaded, he picked me up. And I said, dad, what are you doing? He's like, you got to jump out. You got to jump. You got to go. You got to find a way to go. I'm like, where am I going to go? He's like, I don't care. I'm going to push you out the window and I just want you to run. And I'm like, it's three o'clock in the morning. How am I going to do that? Mind you, my bedroom window, if you jump out of it, you land into a ditch. And then from the ditch, you could walk a little bit more. But I mean, when I say walk, it's a few miles to get to the main road. And so in my head, I said, okay, I see what he wants me to do. And when I, when I, when I say this, this was like not even five seconds, like it happened so quick and I'm like, okay, I get it. You want me to jump out, land in the ditch and just run to that main road. So I realized that's what he wanted me to just go. But in my heart, I'm like, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to mom? What's going to happen to my sister if I leave? So all of that is going through my mind in like two, three seconds time. And then next thing I know, my dad is picking me up. I start putting my legs out the window. And then a shot happened. So the invaders were also, that's when we realized the invaders were also outside of the home. They saw my legs about to come out of the window to escape and they fired at me. But I escaped the shot. Obviously I'm here talking to you and you're listening and you Scott and I did the shot just missed me. And the reason why the shot missed me is because my dad ended up, I fell on my back. My dad pulled me back and I fell on my back. It's at that moment that we were like, honestly, we're like, we're screwed. This is, this is bad. There's no way out. If they're outside surrounding the house, they're probably, the neighbors are probably awake and seeing what's happening and they can't help us. We're screwed. I honestly knew at that moment that I was going to die. All of us were going to die. It was over. It was done. As soon as I fell on my back and I got up and I'm like, and we were all holding one another, my mom, my dad, and my sister, just praying to God that they would not open my bedroom door because we're like, maybe they can't find us or maybe they don't want us. But I was completely wrong because a man opened the door. And as soon as he opened the door, he had his gun in his hand. He pulled my mom. He pulled my dad. And he did not, he left me and my sister. At that moment, I held my sister's hand and I said, we have to go hide somewhere. I don't know why they don't want us now. If they're going to come for us after, we can't get out of the house because they're outside. Let's go hide in the bathroom. My heart, like I'm speaking to you right now, like my hands are sweaty. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And 
So I'm in the bathroom with my sister and that's where I saw everything. That's where it all happened. And I had to put my hand, my, my created like, like a fist. And I, I put my hand in my sister's mouth because she, so she wouldn't scream. I had my other hand on my mouth so I wouldn't scream. And the bathroom door where we were hiding was not completely shot. And so I never asked my sister actually about this. It's something that I may have to ask her one day. She never mentioned it to me if she was able to see what I was able to see because she was behind me with my hand in her mouth. And so I was looking and all I could see was the mid to bottom part of my parents' body. They were laying flat on the floor and I couldn't see anything else but that. At that moment, I didn't know if, I didn't know what what, what happened. I didn't know if they were alive or not because I couldn't make out what was happening. I could hear the invaders talking and saying things, but I couldn't really make out what it was. For a good, I don't know, like five seconds, they were saying stuff and I could hear my dad answering them. And then that's when it happened. I heard the shot. And when I heard the shot, it was like a two, two step thing. I heard the shot, my heart skipped. And then I looked and I saw the pool of blood growing and growing and growing and my heart skipped again. And at that moment, I could make out, is it my dad? Is it my mom? Or is it both of them that got shot? And that's when I said to myself, my life is going to change. And at that moment, I was praying to God that they would leave. And I'm thinking thinking to myself, are they going to come? To us now, my sister and I. But then I heard them say in Creole, let's get out of here. And they left. When I realized that they left, and I heard my mom said they left, I opened the bathroom door, went to them. I realized my mom was not the one that was shot, but it was my dad. And he was laying on the floor with his head in the pool of blood. But he he didn't pass at that moment because the bullet, the way he was shot, it was not instant. So he was awake, but I don't know that he was. He was aware of what had happened because he kept calling my mom's first name. Scott, I don't even know. I don't remember how we got in the car with him. But we got in the car. I had his head on my lap in the back seat. I was looking down at him, holding his head. My entire body was full of blood and I could smell it. I was holding his head and... uh, looking at his eyes that were like, you know, not focused. I said, dad, 
hang on tight. We're going to take care of this. Mommy's driving. We're going to go to the hospital. You're going to be fine. And I remember telling her, I said, I'm okay. They did nothing to me. And now he left me. I was 16. He left me. And uh, after 25 years, you know, every year, every moment, honestly. And I don't know if it's because my daughter now is 16. I look at her and I'm like, this was me. I was a baby. You said he he actually died two days later. So he was in the hospital. Did you ever feel like you got any communication from him at all during that time? I did um, because he got into a coma right away. And I went to visit him actually the night before he passed. I was in this room and I held his hand. I held his hand and I looked at him and I said to him, I said, you know, I had a whole conversation with him. I said, you know, I love you so much, dad. And, you know, a lot of what I do, I do it with you, for you. And Scott, I don't know till this day if it's my mind tricking me at the time that's what happened or I honestly felt him squeezing my hand when I spoke to him. I remember saying to him, I'm going to be okay. And I honestly felt his hand squeezing mine. When's the last time you took a $10 bill, walked into your bathroom, and flushed it down the toilet? Well, for me, it was about three weeks ago. Okay, I didn't literally send cash into the local sewer system, but I might as well have, because I was paying for a subscription that I forgot about and wasn't even using. And the only way I knew about it was because I signed up for Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending and it helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. So you can immediately see all of your subscriptions listed right there in one place. When I saw that list, there were things listed that I didn't even know what they were. You know how it is. You sign up for a free trial and then you end up not using the thing and you forget about it but you still keep paying for it. With Rocket Money, I just make a few clicks and they cancel it for me. I don't even have to make a phone call. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash what was. That's rocketmoney.com slash what was. Rocketmoney.com slash what was. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Here's a what would you do question. From now on, every day at 5 p.m., an hour goes by, and it's still 5 p.m. So you get an extra full hour in your day. What would you do with that hour of free time? For me, do I start writing that book I've been thinking about? Start learning a new language? Check in with some people I haven't talked to in a while? Seems like everyone wishes there was more time. The question is, time for what? How do you prioritize? Well, guess what? 
Therapy can help you figure out what really matters to you so you can do more of those things. Talking with a professional therapist can help you answer some of those internal questions, and that can empower you to actually be the best version of yourself. You've heard me and a lot of my guests talking about the benefits of therapy here on the podcast, and maybe you've been thinking about checking it out. If that's you, then give BetterHelp a try. You can do it from home in your pajamas if you want, because it's all online and you can fit it to your specific schedule. You just answer a few questions, get matched with a licensed therapist, and you're on your way. And you can even get started right now with a discount. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WhatWas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash WhatWas. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I also told him, I remember I said, do not leave me ever. I said, you're coming back. You're going to be fine. You're going to wake up and we're going to be together. Never, never, never leave me. I honestly believe that he hasn't left me because a lot of things that I've been able to accomplish in my life till this date, I truly in my heart believe that he is activating. He's still, he's, he's there. He's just, I just can't see him. I'm I'm being honest. I, I remember, I didn't even know I was going to have a baby, Scott. I didn't know I was expecting my daughter. And the night before my doctor's appointment, I had a dream. I saw my dad handing me an infant in my dream. I didn't even know. So that right there, and and I have plenty of other examples of things that's happened in my life where he has shown himself. And, and, And what's crazy is, and I don't know, I'm not, you know, I've lost loved ones over the years and I've no friends, family that lost very close people. But with me, he was very, very active in my life for the first three years after he passed. When I say active, I would see him in my dreams every single night. And then there was one night I remember clearly in my dreams, him and I having the conversation, him telling me, I have to go now, but I'll always be there. But now I have to go. I, I, I can't, I can't keep doing that. I have to go. And you, and that's when I realized he's like, wait, you got to take care of you too. You have a life. And believe me, right after that, I was not, I was no longer seeing him as much as I was seeing him before if that makes sense. But every now and then over the years, he's shown up in some shape or form, which is amazing. The funeral was 
the saddest day, one really the saddest day. I was gonna say one of the saddest days of my life, but honestly, it's 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 it was the saddest ever day of my life. 16 years old, so many people, people were standing outside of the church. People were standing inside of the church, packed, packed with people. And I decided during the service to go up and speak. I have never shared this before. I remember looking at the crowd. It was blurry for me. But I remember feeling this strength just building inside of me, mixed with anger and just resilience, just building and building and this force building inside of me as I was talking and speaking. And and I remember I didn't have any written speech or anything. I just remember talking about my father and what he has done in his life and how I'm going to be the extension of him. I made that declaration that day. And that's when from this point on, I was feeling so empowered and I had this force in me that honestly was the foundation of giving me the opportunity to just make the decision to do something with my life despite this and, 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 and really keeping him top of mind and not disappoint him. And I remember when we got to the cemetery and they were closing I remember feeling that he was not in there, in that box. I remember feeling that he was in the air. I remember feeling his presence around me. And I said, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be just fine. I can imagine part of the problem with how to respond to this or how to go forward is the fact that these invaders were never identified. I mean, how, how big of a deal is it that you never got justice? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, I, my mom, my sisters, and I had to, had to just accept. And that was not long ago that we were like, you know what? We just got to move on guys. Like it's, we're never going to know why, we're never going to know if December and May were the same people or not. We're never going to know their motives. We're never going to know other than maybe dad would have been able to tell us. Maybe there was something that he knew that we didn't know, but we're not going to know. We're never going to know. And so we fought. When I say we, my mom and my sisters fought for many years over the last 25 years, for many years struggling with that thought that we'll never have justice and having to accept that this is, this is what it is. When you don't have that closure, you have to 
create your own closure. That is correct. You know, as I mentioned to you, first I was angry and I took that anger and it was really the foundation of my resilience and the way I dwelt with it, which is not the ideal way, honestly, I didn't mourn enough. I wasn't grieving enough. I wasn't crying enough initially, I feel, because I was honestly trying to escape the pain and hiding behind my schoolwork, hiding behind doing well at work because I was working full-time and attending college full-time. And I was just on a fast forward mode. Like I was like, I got to do this. I got to do that. I was constantly studying, you know, I wasn't living my own life. And it's later on, like now that I'm realizing what was happening. I was running away from facing the truth of what had happened. And I'm now realizing that it's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to remember them and take a moment. And the way I handled it, honestly, is when that night when I had the dream, my dad was like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go. I have to go. And I woke up and I'm like, oh, my gosh, wait. He's really not here. And so I decided to celebrate him more and more. I decided to, especially when I had my daughter and then my son and even today, I engaged them by sharing with them about their grandfather, what he did and the funny things he did. And and that's my way of keeping him alive. And also every time I do something, every accomplishment or failure or whatever experience I go through, I make sure I bring him up into the mix, even though he's not here and I have the conversation with him. And so the way I, that's how I deal with it. I, I deal with it in my mind that he's physically not with me, but he's spiritually around me. I know for a fact I'm from Haiti. And so we have a lot of the Caribbean. We have a lot of, um, what's the word? Like, um, we believe in symbols and, you know, and so it's it, the, the first year, two years after he passed, I would notice a lot of different signals and signs that his presence was around from butterflies to unexpected flowers or flower in the middle of nowhere to like, I mean, I have a laundry list of things that I know I saw that for me confirmed that he has always been around and he's continuing to be around. So the way I deal with it is like that. I just have the mindset that it's a matter of time for us to see each other again. And I seek for guidance like I would have done if he was around. I have the conversation with him when I'm stuck with something. I'm like, dad, how would you do that? Right. Call me crazy, but you'll find me having a conversation and it looks like I'm having a conversation with myself, but in my heart, I'm actually talking to him. (laughs) Do you have any ideas why your family was targeted? Not just once, but twice. I don't have an idea. I, I, I do 
believe we were targeted to begin with, that it wasn't a random invasion. Although in Haiti, unfortunately, things like this happen often because of the nature of the environment and dynamic there. But I do believe we were targeted. When I talked to my mom, I tried to find out from her cues. And it's also hard for her to to understand. But I do believe we were targeted. Now, the reason why we were targeted, that I can't answer. And like I said, I feel like that's the part where if my dad, you know, at least could have communicated for a little bit and there's something that he probably knew that we didn't, or he was, he meant to tell us that he didn't, I don't know. But I feel like if anything, he'd be the one to be able to explain this to us. I mean, knowing his background, um, for what I know and from what I've heard and from what my mom experienced with him, he was part of the political uh, system at one point when we got back. And, you know, in fact, one of the things that was provided for him was a chauffeur when he was part of the justice system at the time, the institution. And he would have the chauffeur pick me up from school. And one particular day, the chauffeur, another chauffeur picked me up. Because again, we didn't have digital communication, cell phones and things like that. And I noticed the car, but I noticed a different chauffeur. And that's when I found out that my dad had made the decision to not send me my the regular chauffeur, but to send me this new chauffeur. And later on, I found out that the original chauffeur that was supposed to pick me up got shot driving someone else that was part of the institution where my dad was and my dad was in the car behind that car that got shot. So all that to say, that's why I I, I 90% believe we were targeted. I don't know why till this day. But obviously being politically active, he may have made a few enemies. Although it seems like the invaders were looking for valuables, jewelry, things like that. Mm-hmm. That's where I, I'm not clear, right? I'm like, is it a target or is it an invasion? Because those things happen in Haiti. So I, 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 I don't know. At the time of his death, you and your dad were very close, like together all the time. And he was going through sort of a transformation mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. What was happening with him? He was. And so I remember that day he picked me up from school and we went grocery shopping. And I remember him making me laugh because he was very funny in the supermarket. And we were very engaged. And so my dad used to drink a lot. He was an alcoholic, honestly. The reason behind it, till this day, I try. I have, I have so many questions for him. And you know what's crazy, Scott? It's like the questions I had for him were questions that at the age of 16 were going to start to open up for me to ask him. And I didn't get a chance to do that. Because at 16, you know, that's when I'm like, wait, if you're an alcoholic, there's a reason behind it, dad. But I remember being 13 and that's when I 
I, I remember having a conversation with him. I said that there's something called AAA. I didn't even know what it was. I'm like, there's something called, you know, like you could go talk to people. I found out. I really want you to be better because, you know, you drink too much. And when you do, and I didn't under, I was 13. I didn't understand that people with addiction or whatnot, there's usually a reason behind it. But I didn't get that part. I didn't get to that part yet. I didn't understand. But long story short, he was going through a transformation thanks to me. Because I had a conversation with him when I was 13. I said, Dad, I love you so much, but I don't love you like this. I want you to change. Would you do it for me? And that's when he was very thin. He had lost a lot of weight back then. And he said, you know what? Yes. And three years after that, that's when he passed. He was gaining weight. He was active. He was no longer drinking. He was the healthiest man ever. And that also got me upset. I'm like, why? He was just getting back on track, like not being an alcoholic anymore. And he had just decided, because I had asked him to leave the political system. I told him, I said, I don't know that this is the right thing for you to do that. That was three years before this whole thing happened. And he's like, you know what? And he left. And he went back to the education part that he did in Africa. And he did it in Haiti. He was teaching at a school. I was in his classrooms after school. And he enjoyed the students. And he had left all of that. He was a brand new man. And then this happened. That's got to add to just the injustice of the whole situation. You know, the bad timing. Yeah. What have you done since then? You've you've made quite a few advances in your own life, career-wise, and you have your own business. Were you just channeling all your anger into success? Yeah, that's what I have concluded happened. Absolutely. Because now... I am. I've always been a type A kind of person. Um, I My mom tells the story all the time where in Africa, when I was in kindergarten, I'd come home and she used to go to me and say, Martine, put your book back down. You just got home. Relax. You could do your homework later. Because I <laughs> like literally would get home, open my backpack and start doing homework. And she's like, wait, take a moment. You'll do homework. So that's that's me. I'm always that one that's like, I want to be the team leader for the presentation. This is how we're going to do it. Like, that's always been installed in me. Um, that's unusual for a kid. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so with that and then what's the anger, you know, I just, I was this fireball <laughs> um, just wanting to do. And so... Yeah, I, I went through college full-time working a full-time job. At one year, I was working two full-time jobs and going to college full-time. And I was like, I could do anything, right? You know, I, I'm blessed to say that I did very well for myself in my career. I worked in corporate America for for years before I was laid off as a result of the pandemic. 
and this job that I had, I remember the first time I was assigned to travel to Asia for work. I remember thinking about my dad because that was one of the wishes that I had told him that I wanted to do was to travel to Asia with him because he's never been. Even though we lived in Africa, we were going to Europe, we came to the States, he's been to Brazil, he's, you know, he's a world traveler, he's never made it to Asia. And I remember having the conversation with him saying, when I graduate high school, we are going to celebrate with a trip to Asia. And so that obviously did not happen. And so my career in corporate honestly gave me the opportunity to manifest him again, right? So I went to Asia several times. I've been to Europe and, you know, I got promoted several times and learned a lot. And that's one thing I've accomplished that I know I'm very grateful for. As a podcaster, there's nothing more gratifying than being able to make a difference in the lives of real people. If you like seeing that happen and you enjoy true crime podcasts, I have a show you're going to love. It's called Proof. If you heard the first season of Proof, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This show is co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed. She's also an attorney. And Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. They created season one by investigating the story of two young men in Georgia who were serving life sentences for supposedly murdering their friend. These men had spent 25 years in prison, and on December 8, 2022, based on evidence that was unearthed by Susan and Jacinda for the podcast, they were released. Can you imagine being in prison for 25 years and then getting released because of a podcast? And now the second season of Proof, called Murder at the Warehouse, is being released. Susan and Jacinda are digging into this new case about Renee Ramos in Manteca, California. Her body was found under a pile of debris, and her boyfriend and another man were arrested and convicted. But things don't seem to add up. Did investigators actually ignore tips that pointed to other suspects? Could this be another case where an innocent person has spent years locked up in prison? It's all going to come out on this new season. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams.
today, not only do I have a business, as you shared, uh, I love it so much. I also teach. I'm an adjunct professor. Uh, and so I'm in the higher education field. And guess who was in that field? As I mentioned before, my dad, he was a teacher as well for Hyatt. And I have to add, I recently became a notary public out of nowhere. It's another story. But then when I shared that with my mom, I said, mom, I I had this situation happen and I'm going to go through with, you know, getting my notary public certification. And she's like, did you know that your dad was the notary public as well? I'm like, no way. (laughs) I'm like, well, I guess he's manifesting and showing me all these things without me even realizing. (laughs) I'm like, what's next? I remember I spoke to my mom the other day. I said, what is it that dad did that I have yet to do? Can you tell me so it's not another surprise? You want to predict your own future, don't yeah. you? <laughs> well, you mentioned that you're a professor. What you didn't mention is that it's at three different colleges. You are really driven and you have your own podcast. What's your podcast about? Yes, I do. I have a podcast. It's a video podcast. It's called Visualize and Create. And that's what my motto is. I've been on that journey of visualizing what I wanted. I I even remember being an assistant at my corporate job and visualizing becoming a manager and thinking, how am I going to create that transition? So I'm I'm in this constant visualize creation mode. And so I decided to open up the video podcast to curate amazing individuals from all walks of life around the globe that have created amazing lives for themselves. And it's not only in business, but also in their lifestyle, their health, their careers. And they come on the show to share their journey and also share the how for the ones that are tuning in that wants to probably do the same thing, the second act, or maybe they're teachers and they get that inspiration from people that that they can actually relate to and giving them the tools. And so that's my podcast. It sounds like that's the perfect outlet for you to help people in that way. Yes. So your website, tell people about your website and how they can find you. Thank you, Scott. Yes, for you listening, I would love for you to visit my website. It's my name, martinecadet.com. On there, you'll have the opportunity to connect with me on social platforms. I invite you to message me directly. I love, love connecting. And so do not hesitate. I'm the one that answers my messages. And so I don't have anybody else doing it. And so just mention that you heard the episode and, you know, I'd love to support you in any way I can. And so everything is on my website. My podcast link is there. Uh, You can also download the podcast should you want to. It's an app. And so, yeah, martinecadet.com is my website and you'll find everything there. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes as well for anybody that wants to to contact you or listen to your podcast or anything. Just one final thing. It just occurred to me when your dad, when you were all in your bedroom at that second home invasion and your dad was trying to get you out the window, one of the last things he did in his life was trying to protect you. 
and everything you've done since then is what an honor for his memory. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now I, I have pictures of him all over my desk as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at him. He's alive. He's alive. He's all well and done. I know this is not an easy thing for you to talk about, and I really appreciate your sharing your story with us. Scott, thank you so much for creating this space and participating in my healing process. This past May, Martine and I almost met in person. We were both at a podcasting conference in Orlando. I did meet a lot of people there, but when there's a couple thousand people attending, you just can't meet everyone. At one of the sessions which I had planned to attend but didn't make it, Martine told a very abbreviated version of this story about her dad. Some of the people who heard that and know about my podcast came and told me, hey, there's someone you have to talk to as a guest on your show. But by that time, it was toward the end of the conference and Martine had already left to go home. Big thanks to my friend Wendy, who was at PodFest and was able to connect us so that I could get Martine's story out to you. Recently, I did an episode with a young woman named Courtney. It also involved losing a parent, but in a different way. It was about medical assistance in dying. If you haven't heard it yet, it's episode 112, called Courtney's Mom Chose When to Die and Have Some Tissues Ready. I knew this would be a popular episode, but even I was surprised at all the positive feedback. This might be the most memorable story that's been told here on the podcast. Many of the compliments come from listeners in the Facebook group, and Courtney herself is in that group and was able to respond personally. If you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, come on over and join the discussions. It's at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. I also got some emails about that episode, as well as this voicemail from Lucy. Hi, Scott. My name's Lucy, and I'm from England, and I just wanted to let you know how much I love your podcast. Every episode is so different and interesting, and I particularly enjoy the way you interview each guest gently, without interruption, just letting them tell their story. I was moved so much by the episode, Courtney's Mum Chose to Die. I thought it was so beautiful and so heartbreaking. To have that chance to say goodbye without your family having to see you die in agony, but in peace and spending your last hours together loving each other seems beautiful to me. It's making me cry now writing this, and I have to say I ugly cried through quite a lot of it, which was awkward as I was at work at the time. Anyway, I will stop rambling on and to say thank you. I love your show and I hope it keeps going for many years to come. Thanks, Scott. Bye. And there's something else I want to mention today. If you're like me, you have a lot of podcasts on your phone that you subscribe to. New episodes go live and you have them ready to listen to automatically. If you could somehow go back in time to your list of podcast subscriptions from a year ago or two or three years ago, there's a good chance that there'd be some shows on that old list that you're no longer subscribed to. I'm the same way. It's something I've noticed about some shows. When they first come out, or when I first discover them, they're great. The host and the producers, they're all excited about the content. They put a ton of effort into it. It's just a really good show. But over time, something happens. Maybe the host or the production team gets bored, or they run out of stories or something, but the show just gradually becomes not as good as it was in the beginning. 
or maybe it actually becomes a really bad show. Of course, the creators of that podcast never intended it to happen, but it still declined and listeners started to just leave. The reason I'm mentioning that is because I want to make sure that never happens with this podcast. I don't want to fall into the trap of complacency and end up with a show that's boring for me and boring for you. So I always have that thought in my mind to deliberately be aware of not letting that happen. If you, my listener, and by the way, you're my favorite listener, if you ever start to notice that things are starting to slip in that direction, please let me know. I want to always put out episodes that make you really look forward to the next one. Okay, on to this week's listener story. If you're new to the show, we end each episode with a listener story. Just a short story, like three to five minutes, called in from a listener. If you have a story that's interesting, you're welcome to call it into the podcast voicemail line. 727-386-9468. This time we're hearing from Kathy about a time when she was a child and got lost. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. My name is Kathy, and this is a story about the time, as a little girl, I got lost in the Mojave Desert. I grew up in Southern California, and my family spent a lot of time camping in the Mojave. On one trip, when I was about 11 years old, I wanted to tag along with my dad, my brother, and a friend of my dad's while they went out to hunt rabbits. I had a hard time keeping up with them. I tried to take a shortcut to catch up, and in doing so, my foot slipped off a rock and I was punctured by the thick, sharp point of a century plant. Since I was only wearing canvas sneakers, the point went through the side of my foot and I was bleeding quite a bit. My dad came back to find me, and when I showed him my foot, he told me to go back to camp. I guess he assumed I knew how to get back. Well, I didn't. Before I knew it, I was hopelessly lost. As I kept walking, I found myself atop some huge boulders, some as big as a car. I started climbing down. By this time, I was getting worried, but not too much. I found myself on a boulder that was too big to jump off to the next one, so I laid on my belly and started sliding down. I thought I was touching the next boulder, so I let go. Well, I wasn't touching, and I fell hard onto that rock. That was it. I started crying and screaming, Mom! Mom! I had no idea if she could hear me, but after a few minutes, she did. She kept calling my name so I could find my way back to camp. Needless to say, my mom was fuming mad. She called my dad an SOB and said, I hope he doesn't get any rabbits. I was just relieved to be safely back at camp. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking try free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon.